Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Back in that chapter that's called the Great Hall of Faith. Our sermon title for today is Faith in Victory, Faith in Defeat. I'd like to set the context by starting the reading in Hebrews 11.1. 1. We'll read 1 through 3 and then we'll grab verse 6 before we get to our text. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's not enough just to say, I believe in God. We must believe the truth about God. That God is a promise keeper. He's faithful to his word. And everything the scripture says that's true about God, we must believe. So we think about that in the context of this chapter. The author is reminding us of all of these examples of faith and how it brought great victory in their life and great glory to God from verses 4 all the way to 31. You see these examples of faith and victory. As we look at our outline today, it's a very simple outline. We'll see in verses 32 and through 35 a summary of faith and victory. And then in verse 35 to 38, a summary of faith and defeat. And we won't have time to get there, but if you like outlines, the next two verses would be a glimpse of faith and glory. So before we begin, let's pray together. Dear Lord, our God, we're grateful to be here today, and we also know that we need your help to give proper attention to the truth of your word, and so we ask that you would strengthen our hearts and minds, that you'd enable our attention spans to be better than usual, that you'd enable our minds to concentrate so that we can focus on you, focus on all the truth that that this chapter brings us. So we ask for your help today, and we ask that our hearts would be attuned to sing of that great victory in Jesus to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, let's consider faith and victory, beginning in verse 32. The author is wrapping up the chapter, and he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Let's pause there. You see in this language, for time will fail me, that it's the language of an intentional summary. The author is running out of time in paper, and so we're going to treat this passage as a summary and look at it almost topically as we see these examples of faith and victory wrap up. We think of some of these examples he just mentions in passing, like Gideon uh, taking an army of 300 into battle against a much larger enemy. We think of David, how he faced Goliath by faith, and David's military exploits, and all of David's mighty men that you can read about in 2 Samuel. We think about what it says here, they obtained promises by faith. You think of the great Abrahamic covenant, how God promised to bless all the nations of the earth in him, and he became the father of faith. The Davidic covenant, prefiguring the new covenant, all pointing toward Christ. By faith, they obtained these promises. They shut the mouths of lions, and immediately you think of Daniel, thrown into a lion's den overnight with lions who we know were clearly hungry because after Daniel was removed, they had a meal. 
And so David, it says, Daniel rather, it says, was taken up out of the lion's den with no injury whatsoever found on him because he trusted in his God. Then it says, they quenched the power of fire. Immediately you might think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were faced with execution by burning. And it says, they became mighty in war by faith. They put armies, foreign armies, to flight. And maybe you'll think of uh, 1 Samuel 14 where Jonathan and his armor bearer, just the two men, put a whole army, they routed a whole army, just with two of them, by faith. It says in the text, women received back their dead by resurrection, by faith. And we think of Elijah and Elisha, don't we, in First and Second Kings, how they raised the dead as prototypes of the resurrection to come. Tremendous victories were required and accomplished by faith. You think of all the Old Testament characters and all the prophets and priests and the kings and patriarchs, all were exemplars of the Christ to come, the faithful one. But at this point in the text, right in the middle of verse 35, note that the author takes a sharp pivot and he turns 180 degrees because the outcome of faith is not always victory, is it? And you think about and remember who the author is writing to here. Let's flip back just to chapter 10 and verse 32 for a second and remember who it is the author of Hebrews is writing to. He says, remember the former days. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So he's writing to people that are being seriously persecuted, isn't he? So in a sense, with that in mind, the Holy Spirit inspires this author to make this pivot in the middle of verse 35 lest they be left with the impression that faith always results in victory. Like some modern preachers want to preach that if you believe in Jesus, success and prosperity will be yours at, at all times. I mean, it's not the case. And the Lord is merciful to these recipients of this letter when they receive this because now we're not only talking about faith in victory, we're talking about faith also in defeat, faith in the face of persecution. So from examples of faith to examples of defeat, yes, these women received back their dead by resurrection, but others were tortured for their faith. So whether God grants us victories in this life or defeats in this life, the nature of saving faith produces perseverance in the midst of it all. So let's consider faith and defeat. Beginning in verse 35, we'll spend the bulk of our time it says, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Look at this phrase, others were tortured, not accepting their release. What does that mean, not accepting their release? They didn't yield to the pain and horrors of prolonged torture, even as they were being excruciatingly tortured to death and being commanded to recant their faith. They didn't accept release. They didn't say, let me go, I'll recant. They refused to accept release from torture. Why? Look at the text. So that they might obtain a better resurrection. Their faith had filled them with the hope of the resurrection to such an extent that they could say to their tormentors, even if you kill me, I trust my God to raise me. James also uses the example of the persecuted prophets strangely to encourage the suffering saints when he says in James 5, Brethren, as an example of suffering and patience, 
Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And what endurance God gave to Job, didn't he? In the face of great suffering and temptation, Satan had ripped and robbed him of everything he possessed. This very wealthy man, he'd lost it all. In a minute, it's gone. He even lost his children. Satan was allowed to kill his children. And then he's covered with boils from head to toe and his health is completely stripped from him to the point of suffering and death. And his wife even says to him, curse God and die. And how does Job respond? How does he answer that? He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's the nature of belief for all those who've suffered persecution throughout the ages of church history, isn't it? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Now back to our text in verse 36. See, this list of tortures is truly horrific. Magicians may make a game, you know, of cutting people in half, but this was not a game. These people were alive while they were sawn in two. They watched this happen. These are horrific things to think about. None of us are really expecting to be stoned or sawn in half. But you never know what a day will bring forth, do you? You never know what God might call you to. He certainly called them to suffer. Some of us might become missionaries. Some of us in this room may have already been missionaries in foreign lands. Hostile places where your life is threatened. Some of us may see our kids feel called. May say, yeah, I feel called to East Asia or North Africa or places where people want to kill Christians. Will you trust God to let your kids go? Or your grandkids, if they're called to the mission field where their life might well be taken? Will you trust God with them? Some of us might be called to suffer right here in a land that's becoming more openly hostile to Christians all the time. Persecution may well be coming soon to a town near you. And if we started acting like missionaries right here and now, we might end up in dangerous circumstances where we live. And what kind of weapon are you in the arsenal of the Lord? Are you a threat to the enemy? You're just some old Cessna parked in a hangar never used? Or are you an F-15, F-18, F-35 striking out with the gospel for the glory of God? Are you a threat to the enemy so that your life might be put in peril? Are you stuck in your lazy boy? Our culture is currently fracturing into polarized factions before our eyes. The world around us is ripening for judgment before the return of the Lord. Make no mistake about it, the facade of civility that undergirds this culture we live in is crumbling. This is just the beginning. And only prayerful believers will be ready for this spiritual warfare by faith. For whatever the Lord calls us to endure, or our children to endure, we may, may well be those who are called to experience defeat with our faith. In this list of horrific tortures, you could add burned alive. So many martyrs have been burned alive for their faith. And you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego threatened with burning. They're listed in the, the faith and victory section, but they might well have been lifted, listed in this, this faith and defeat section. The outcome could have been very different. They didn't know. It says they quenched the power of fire in verse 34, but, you know, they, they were ready to become martyrs. You remember in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar was, was outraged at them, and in a fit of anger, he, he yells at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? If you do not worship, I will cast you into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You should worship my God. Or you're going to burn to death. 
He threatened to burn them alive if they wouldn't renounce their God. And guess what? They're ready to go to their death. They had the heart of a martyr. They could be called the almost martyrs. What do they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were resolved to worship the one true God alone. Like Job, they were essentially saying, Though you slay us, still we will trust him. Even if he does not deliver us from the flames, still we trust him. Back in our text, you see they're walking around in sheepskins and goatskins, and you might add camel skins for John the Baptist, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, they're living in caves and holes in the ground. These are God's humble ones. These people that were willing to give their lives for the faith. They weren't concerned with material comfort. They were the humble ones of whom the world was not worthy. They weren't faking their faith. They weren't a group of posers, just pretenders. They were the real deal. And so they're the examples of faith, not only in victory, but faith in defeat. It's trusting God, even in defeat, even in death, that is a hallmark of true faith, isn't it? These martyrs in Hebrews 11, they had their senses trained to discern good from evil. They knew that truth was more valuable than human life. Does that sound like a strange statement? Truth is more valuable than human life. Well, human life, after all, is temporal, isn't it? You're from the dust, and you're going to return to the dust. But truth is eternal. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Isaiah declares it this way, the word of our God endures forever. And listen to James contrast that with this. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Truth is more valuable than eternal, than, 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 truth is more valuable than human life. And the martyrs who gave their lives for that proved it. They knew long before Jim Elliot ever said it that a man is no fool who gives up a life that he cannot keep to gain a life that he cannot lose. They knew that in their heart. And that echoes what Jesus said 2,000 years earlier in Matthew 16. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Imagine if the author of Hebrews today were writing an update of Hebrews 11. and was extending this section of church history for us. He'd no doubt note that this arc of the martyr storyline not only runs throughout the Old Testament, it continues running through the New Testament and all through church history, all the way to the end of human history. This arc of the martyr storyline. It's as if the book of Acts didn't end at, at Acts 28. The book of Acts would have thousands and thousands of chapters of church history. And it does, really, and it's written down in heaven. Many of us who pray for persecuted believers are well aware of the fact that in this world today, persecution is intensifying. The 20th century was the worst in the history of the world for, for Christian persecution, had the highest number of Christian martyrs at any time in human history. And the 21st century that we're now in is even worse. It's on track to become the worst. More Christian martyrs, more Christian persecution than at any time in church history at all. Believers are dying for their faith every single day today in this world. 
Genocidal-style massacres are happening in at least five African nations right now. Whole villages are being massacred in their sleep because they claim to be Christians. Even extremist Hindus are killing Christians. And Muslims, they, they think they're doing God a favor when they kill a Christian. What about the governments? Why are they not protecting Christians? They're complicit in it. They prove that by not protecting their citizens who are Christians, they could care less whether Christians live or die. They're complicit. It's called democide, death by government. This is the anti-Christian world we live in. But really, is there anything new under the sun? Jesus alludes to this arc of the martyr storyline when he prophesies against his enemies in Matthew 23. Speaking of this long martyr storyline, he says, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And what are they going to do in response? Some of them you will kill and crucify, just like their father's head. Some of them you will scourge, even in your synagogues, and persecute from city to city. So that upon you, the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, that blood is going to fall on you for all these martyrs that you've killed. Jesus is teaching us here that within the chapters of redemptive history, martyrdom has a distinct storyline. All the righteous blood shed on earth, from Abel's blood, all the way to the blood of the very last Christian martyr, cries out to God for his perfect justice, which will come. The blood of righteous Abel was shed and fell to the earth at the hand of his own brother. Now you wonder if you come from a sinful race. You need look no further than Genesis 3 and 4. Cain was the very first naturally born human being on this planet, born to parents, the very first naturally born human being, was a homicidal, fratricidal killer of his own brother. That's the race we come from. And martyrdom carries on way beyond the Old Testament. You think about the New Testament in Acts 6 and 7, when Deacon Stephen, he gives that glorious sermon spanning the entire history of the Old Testament, redemptive history, and he tells the truth, and what happens? They, they stone him to death for telling the truth. He's considered often the first Christian martyr. But let's not forget John the Baptist, who was beheaded for preaching the truth to those in power. He was, in a sense, the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament prophets, this transitional prophet, but in a very real sense, he's the first Christian martyr in the New Testament. But he certainly wouldn't be the last. After Jesus died, many of the apostles themselves became martyrs. We have some record of that in church history. We see in the scripture, James the son of Zebedee was beheaded just to do his enemies a favor. And in church history, we, we read about Peter. who, When they were going to kill him, they were going to crucify him. Peter didn't want to be crucified like his Lord. He didn't believe he deserved that honor. And he begged them to please just... Crucify me upside down. Anything but what Jesus went through. I, I don't deserve that honor. And so they did. They crucified him upside down. Paul himself was ultimately beheaded on June 29th, the day we now call the International Day of the Christian Martyr, two days from now, where we pray for the persecuted church in the world. The growing persecuted church, I should add. But before Paul was to be killed, he first had to suffer persecution. Remember when he was formerly known as Saul, he himself was a persecutor of the church, breathing out threats and carrying papers from the authorities to put people in jail and giving hearty approval when they killed Christians. He reveled in persecuting Christians, thinking he was doing God a favor. And so this former persecutor of the church gets arrested on the road to Damascus by the Lord Jesus himself in Acts chapter 9. And the Lord says this about Paul, the persecutor. He says, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Lest we wonder if that comes true, 
Paul himself recounts a summary of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. So many times I can't even count I've been beaten. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my Jewish countrymen, dangers from the unbelieving Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brothers in the church. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he caps it off by saying, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And that's just a summary of the sufferings when Jesus said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. But remember, this is the guy who says in 2 Corinthians, it's momentary light affliction. It's not what it sounded like when I read it. Momentary light affliction. That's perspective. He's the one who said, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He knew that only God can turn the great evil of sufferings into greater good. Only God can turn our temporal defeats into His greater glory. Lots of martyrs have come throughout church history, and time would fail us if we tried to cover all the historical martyrs, like John Huss and John Wycliffe, who just for the, the crime of translating and distributing the Word of God are killed. How dare you give people the Word of God in their own language? Martin Luther also translated and distributed the Word of God. And he was faced with martyrdom. He's confronted by the Roman Catholic Church and all the list of charges come out and he's given 24 hours to recant his doctrine of justification by faith. Recant your teachings, we'll be executed. Now go home and think about it. You got 24 hours. Sleep tight comes back the next day ready to trade his life to keep the truth. He's fully expecting and rightly expecting to be killed. He's got the heart of a martyr. He says, even if you slay me, yet I will trust him. Scripture and conscience, here I stand. And he became an almost martyr. But how many of you know that an almost martyr is as good as a martyr? They're willing to give their life for the Lord. Come what may, it's in his hands. I will give my life. I'll trade my life for truth. Their heart's the same as the martyrs. Do you have the heart of an almost martyr? Would you be willing to give your life for the Lord, for the truth of God? Many of us uh, will say, I'll give my life for the Lord. Like Peter, we might be quick to, to say, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. We declare our willingness to die for the Lord, but you know, if that's really true, will we then live for the Lord? That's the prayer that's the loudest one we pray. Sometimes living for the Lord is actually harder than dying for the Lord. It requires the laying aside of every encumbrance, the ditching of every distraction, the trading of all these temporal things for the things that are eternal. It requires a reordering of our life. I mean, do we really mean the things that we claim to believe? Have you ever prayed a prayer like, Lord, I owe you my all. You gave your life for me. You, you shed your precious blood for me. Please help me live a life of grateful dedication to you. You pray prayers like that? Do you really mean that enough to reprioritize and reorder your life? Does your life back up your prayers? 
Living for Christ requires faith, just like dying for Christ requires faith. Those who do not live in faith will not die in faith. Back to the historical arc of the martyr storyline. It extends even into the final chapter of human history when the last of the martyrs will have finally been slain for their faith. In Revelation 6, we hear the voices of the martyrs crying out for God's justice. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, John saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Rest until the full number of martyrs is completed. So we can see in this text that there's actually a fixed number of martyrs in God's sovereign plan. A unique storyline. And he knows each of them by name. Those who have this special place reserved in heaven who are given the unique privilege of glorifying God by giving up their lives. This fixed number of martyrs from Abel to the last martyr slain. The record of church history that we possess is only really a very small part of that record. Most of church history is, in fact, only written in heaven. We're just getting a little bit of it. You suppose that when we believers relocate to heaven, that we'll get to meet those people who are willing to give their lives for the Lord? that we would be interested to hear them tell how God delivered them out of great peril, delivered them even through death by strengthening their faith? Would you want to hear their stories of God's glories? I want to hear what the Lord has done for them from their mouth. So we've seen this summary of faith in victory and this summary of faith in defeat. With the remainder of our time, I'd like to consider... The faith of Jesus himself. You might ask, how is this suddenly becoming about the faith of Jesus? I don't see the name Jesus directly mentioned here in Hebrews 11. Why do you gospel preachers always try to turn every single text around to Jesus? And why do you work so hard to make that happen? Well, every text in the Bible ultimately is about Jesus. And Jesus even speaks to that question himself. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 21 when he teaches this parable. He says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it, and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, the landowner said, he sent his son, saying, well, surely they'll respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Let us seize him and kill him and, and take his inheritance. They took him threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, who do you suppose that's talking about? Yeah, amen. It couldn't be more plain. Jesus is numbering himself among the martyrs in this storyline. Who are these? Who, who's the landowner? It's God, the creator, the possessor of all things. Who are the vine growers? It's the Israelites who received the word of God and the promises and the patriarchs and the covenants. And who are the slaves that the landowner sent? The prophets. And who is the son? We know it's the Lord Jesus himself, numbered among the martyrs in this storyline of the martyrs. The martyrs who came before Christ were historical previews of the martyrdom that Christ himself would experience. And the martyrs who followed Christ and came after him were historical echoes reflecting back to what the Lord Jesus has already accomplished. 
In fact, Jesus is the chief among the martyrs. Our chief shepherd is our chief martyr. He's the source of the martyr's hope of resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead, the chief among those glorified and, and resurrected to glorified life. He's the certain hope of the glory to come. Faith in Jesus is the assurance of things hoped for. But back to this question, what about the faith of Jesus? Did Jesus, who came down from heaven, really need to have faith? You might be thinking, you know, why would Jesus need faith? He's the Son of God. Why would He need faith? But don't forget, He's also the Son of Man. And as a man, the fullness of His humanity is uninterrupted by the fullness of His deity. His humanity is not eclipsed. His divine nature doesn't interfere with the natural development of his human nature. We know we see Jesus as a helpless babe in the manger, fully dependent on his parents, growing up in subjection to them. We see him as a boy in the temple. And we know he kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He grew and matured as any man would. And he was called upon to be filled with the Spirit, to depend on God trust in God. He cry out to God in prayer every day of his life like no one ever has. In full dependence on God is how he lived. Yes, the man Jesus had the gift of faith. He was the quintessential man of faith. As the second Adam, he's the representative head of a new regenerate humanity. He is, in fact, the living definition of what humanity should be. Trusting in God and depending on God for everything. We were designed and created to depend on our Creator. Dependence is not such a bad thing when you think about it in those terms. The faithful one is calling us to depend on Him, believe in Him, and trust in Him, and have faith in Him. Jesus modeled that more than anyone. And the faith of Jesus is nowhere more clearly seen than when He faced His own execution. He wasn't facing a natural death, was he, at 33? It was a form of torture that he faced, and certain forms of torture can be a fate worse than death. Sinful humans are capable of committing unspeakably evil acts against their fellow humans. They invent new weapons of war, new ways of killing in the atrocities of war. They lay awake at night, it seems, contriving of unfathomable cruelties and excruciating forms of torture. So much expression of humanity in war seems so sadistic, so homicidal. The unquantifiable amount of blood shed on this earth testifies to the evil of man. Nowhere is this evil more clearly seen than in the diabolical invention of crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't designed for its pragmatic simplicity. Let's just take a couple boards and make this happen. No, it was designed specifically for its sadistic cruelty. The idea of crucifixion was to use the force of gravity to maximally intensify pain and maximally prolong the suffering of death. It would be hard to even imagine what it would be like to be hanged on a cross. Before they even hung you there, they would tear your back open so that any movement against the cross would be felt there. Your full body weight would be hanged and suspended by spikes impaling your body. Your feet would be nailed to the cross in such a way that your knees would have to be bent at a 45-degree angle because they didn't want the skeleton to support the body weight. So they bent the knees and nailed the feet up high. When the weight pulled down against the outstretched arms, the muscles in the arms would fatigue and quickly give out. And then the weight would suspend down against the joints and dislocate the shoulders. You remember in Psalm 22 where it says, all my bones are out of joint. Gravity would then pull against the tendons and nerves across your chest to the point where you couldn't even breathe. Unless your feet and your hands pulled up against the wounds, you couldn't get a breath because your chest was so pinched. 
as soon as you get exhausted enough to just give up, you start to suffocate. But your survival instinct won't let you suffocate. It forces you to need to breathe. And so you pull again to catch a breath, every single breath, pulling against the wounds. And this cycle of torture would start up again and again. Every time you were exhausted and started to suffocate, you'd pull up again. You couldn't even pass out from the pain. This instinctual, desperate need to breathe forced you to do this torture over and over until you finally tortured yourself to death. The victims of crucifixion would torture themselves to death. It was horrifying in its cruelty. And so our Lord's death was physically similar to many of the martyrs who came before him, who foreshadowed his death. And like those who were martyred before, Jesus was despised, he was rejected of men for telling the truth about God. He was hated. He was hated and pursued and plotted against, betrayed, hunted down, tortured, humiliated, and executed in one of the worst ways imaginable simply because he told the whole truth about God. Like the martyrs, he suffered extreme misery under the cruel hand of man. But unlike the martyrs, who came before Jesus. Jesus also faced a spiritual component, a spiritual dimension to his execution that was unlike any other. It could be no doubt that those martyred saints in Hebrews 11 would have needed courage to face the fear of torture and death. That's why we talk about faith producing courage. It's trusting God that gives us our courage. That's what real faith produces, even in the face of death. But do you suppose that Jesus, like those martyrs before, was afraid when he faced his own execution? Do you think he might have been expressing fear in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew what was coming? It's a tough question because the scripture is not explicit at that point. But we see him praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please let this cup pass from me. But not your will, but mine be done. We know the contemplation of what Jesus faced caused his soul to be deeply grieved, the scripture says, very distressed and troubled to the point of death. And being in agony, he was praying so fervently that his sweat became so thick, fell to the ground like drops of blood. The dilemma of what he was facing, not just physically, but spiritually, was what put him in that deep state of agony the spiritual contemplation of what he faced. Is the scripture really implying that, that, that Jesus was afraid? And people generally resist even the suggestion that Jesus might be afraid because how dare you say the Son of God could be afraid? But don't let that impede you from contemplating that possibility. It's an understandable sentiment. But Jesus was also the Son of Man. In his humanity, he possessed all the normal mental faculties, the normal survival instinct that any sane man would. And the right application of fear is designed to keep us from harm, after all. It's not always a sin to be afraid. And don't misunderstand, no one would suggest that any potential fear Jesus experienced could in any way be equated with cowardice. No one is suggesting that. But did he fear? Fear is connected to the survival instinct in such a powerful way that any sane human being who desires to preserve life makes the right use of fear. Jesus was not insane. He was not suicidal. He didn't desire death. He's the author of life. He possessed all those faculties. If anybody was sane and healthy and balanced of mind, it would have been Jesus. But the inestimably intense pressure of his dilemma in the garden was tearing him apart beyond the contemplation of physical death. Jesus' distress was based on something far deeper than the cruel method of execution he was facing. What distressed him in the garden was not how he was going to die, but why. 
his own personal holiness caused him to have a revulsion towards sin. And yet he knew that he would have to take upon himself the guilt of all the putrefied sin of believers everywhere. He understood completely that he was to be made sin for us. He was to bear in his own person the full weight of God's justice against sin. And he would have to drink the full cup of God's righteous wrath that we all deserve in our place. That's what created his agony in the garden, not the method of execution. It was bearing the sin. Martin Luther expresses his understanding of Gethsemane very plainly. He doesn't equivocate when he declares that no man ever feared death the way that Jesus did because no man was ever to die the death that Jesus was to die. It's a profound observation of the spiritual consequences that Jesus faced. No one ever died the death that he was to die. And there were a lot of other people that were crucified, but no one ever bore sin and faced the judgment of God. Jesus' fear in the garden was not the illegitimate fear of man, but the legitimate fear of Almighty God. In Matthew 10, Jesus himself says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear Him, I tell you. So in the final analysis, our Lord's death is not like the martyrs who only typified His death. It was distinct from them by orders of, of magnitude, inestimable orders of magnitude different. There was never any death like that. Only once in the entire history of humanity would there ever be a perfectly innocent man who would be so qualified to offer his life as a vicarious substitutionary sacrifice that would satisfy the righteous requirements of God's holy justice. I know that's a long sentence, so please let me read it again. Only once in the entire history of humanity would there ever be a perfectly innocent man who would be qualified to offer his life as a vicarious substitutionary sacrifice that would satisfy the righteous requirements of God's holy justice. Only he is qualified to take your place and face the judgment of God that your sins deserve. Only one man in the history of humanity could do that. No other martyr could ever do that. First Timothy makes that clear about the singularity of Christ's personage within the entire human race. Of all the population of all the men and women who have ever lived, only one personage is qualified to mediate between God and man. He alone possesses the true nature of man and the true nature of God. So only he can bridge the immeasurable gulf of alienation between a holy God and a race of humans who betray their own creator with their sinful treachery every day of their life. As the only human who ever obeyed God perfectly, he alone can satisfy the demands of God's holy justice. He alone can plead the cause of forgiveness for fallen humanity as the divine Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, while his death may have been similar to the martyrs, no one else but Jesus could ever die that spiritual death he died. So yes, no man ever feared death the way Jesus feared death because no man was ever to die the death that he was to die. And in Matthew 27, on that cross, when Jesus experienced the thing he feared the most... The judgment of God fell on him. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he was being sacrificed for our sins, he cried out once more, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now that was the ultimate act of faith. The ultimate, though he slay me, still I will trust him. Jesus trusted in God. He had faith in God. God calls us to trust in Jesus, the trustworthy one. So whether our faith gets turned into victory or defeat in this life, and that's God's business, isn't it? Our, our calling, what we're called to, is to entrust our souls to the finished work 
of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So even if God determines that we experience defeats, we who have faith know that in the end he'll turn our temporal defeats into eternal victories for his glory and his good. In closing, let me ask you this based on Romans 8. If you're a true believer, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or sword separate you from the love of Christ? Will cancer separate you from the love of Christ? How about Alzheimer's? If your noodle unravels and you forget everything you ever learned, God will not forget his mercy toward you. Will your failures and defeats separate you from the love of Christ? Will being sawn in two separate you from the love of Christ? Oh, our souls will be separated from our bodies. But we will never be separated from our Savior. Let me close by quoting Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, mentioned in Hebrews 11, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in, in your striving against sin. But rest assured that Jesus has resisted to the point of shedding his blood in striving against sin on your behalf. Consider him who overcame sin and death for you. And entrust your soul to him. Let's pray. Dear Father, cause us to be grateful for your salvation and your glorious Son and our beloved Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy to us, your inestimable mercy. We pray that you would enable us make good on those prayers we pray when you ask us to give our life for you. Pray that you'd enable us to have the wisdom to ditch our distractions and to reorder our life for your glory. We so need your help. Please make it so for the glory of Christ. Amen.